Good morning, everyone. In your Bibles, if you go to Genesis 37, that's going to be the beginning place of our study today. And I invite you to make your way and open your Bibles, whether, whether if you're a or a phone or a tablet. However, you're going to get to get the Word of God. It needs to begin in Genesis 37, and we'll be there in just a minute. I've really looked forward to this uh, since the first time your shepherds have your shepherds have me, and I'm so thankful to them for the invitation to be with you. Uh, this church has such an incredible reputation about it. Uh, your love, love one another, your faith in the Lord, your work speaks so far and wide. And I will say as one firsthand, uh, brethren across this nation, and, like, and likely are encouraged by you. And so I'm so thankful to be with you, and I am thankful for the opportunity to get to be refreshed by you and your example. And hopefully a small part in the encouragement in our time in our time. Uh, I know many of us don't know one another, although there's a lot of Hoosiers here, and that's a taste of home. I don't know how you ended up out here, but I'm glad that you're here. Here, and forward to, to getting to know you a lot better. I have a lot more to say in our second hour because I was told we have to be on the clock this first hour. But please know I'm so thankful to be here. Uh, I'm so honored to to feel to to feel this. Thank you to all of you who sent cards and emails ahead of time. Uh, I am attached to a man uh, with the last name of Shouse, and one of you reminded, reminded me that I choose to fill uh, regarding uh, Roger Shouse. It is an honor to be his son, and I'm thankful for the relationship you have with him, uh, and now the relationship we have with one another because of that. So, that. so thank you. Looking forward to a great week with one another and a great week in the Word. I want to introduce you to Maya Gabietta, who is a young surfboarder. And she surfs in Nazare, Portugal, which is the home of some of the largest waves in the world, waves which will rise as tall as seven or seven or eight stories. It's hard enough to be, to be a male or a, a female athlete in a male-dominated sport, but she attempts to surf waves that no other surfer and surfer and would dare touch. I don't know if you know anything about surfing. I know you do a lot of surfing out here in Arizona, but if uh <laughs> Most times, most times when you, you just kind of paddle yourself out there on, on the ocean, and you get up on the board and you kind of just survive the wave. But on these waves, you have to have a professional jet ski driver get you out to out to and he has to have enough skill to get you to that wave. And then if you fall, to find you and get you back to the shore. I don't know if it sounds more terrifying, the actual surfing or the jet ski maneuvering. Well, in 2013, Maya attempted to surf a 50 foot tall wave. She got out on the out on the waves on the board, but the vibrations of the wave were so great that it broke her ankles, and she fell off the board, and that 50-foot-tall mountain of water crashed upon her. Her life jacket was ripped off. Her spine was broken. She was knocked unconscious. When the jet ski driver got to her, they broke her. They brought her over to the shore, where they immediately performed CER, taking her to the hospital, trying everything to keep her to keep her alive. God's grace, she lived. But what followed then was years and years of therapy, four surgeries on her. You would think the next day there'd be a lot of sympathy for those who were in the sport, a lot of people who were sharing their compassion. But instead, what most of the surfers said was she had no business ever just ever trying to surfing such a wave. And what she reported after that accident in 2013 was, I suffer depression every single day. How will I ever climb out of this darkness? Now, you're in the shoes of someone like Maya. How do you move forward after something like that? How do you put the pieces after something so deep and dark and traumatic and go forward? God gave us something very precious, brethren. When he gave us the story of a story of a young who, much like Maya, knew exactly what it was like at a young age to face some traumatic life moments, some deep, deep tragedies. 
God gave us a story of Joseph, and it wasn't just to foretell history and to move the story of God's inspired word along. The story of Joseph told then, told then and teaches to us today what it means to, to stand faithful to God, not in spite of life storms, but through life storms. That the people of God, whether it was in 2020, 20, or 2022, no matter the difficulties that we face, we as God's people can be faithful to him and dedicated to him, him. Joseph shows us how. We're looking at five, five principles this week through the life of Joseph. I want you to go back in time with me, and I want you to walk through his story and to be impressed and encouraged and, encouraged and strengthened by what God reveals about steadfast faith through this young, incredible man. And we got to begin, begin the story, and Sean told me I had 30 minutes. I was planning about 50 to talk about how he began. We're going to cut it down in just a moment. Here's his story to set up this scene. There was a lot of wives, wives the sons, and there was a lot of drama, and that's the bound of the Joseph story. <laughs> it's kind of say that if there was ever a reality show that needed to exist, it was Jacob and his sister wives and all of the children. You've read it before, and if you haven't, let me just summarize it, that Jacob marries two sisters, and then they have their mates mate married because there's nothing but jealousy upon jelly with one another, and they couldn't stand each other, and the brothers, all from different wives, couldn't stand one another. And Joseph enters, Joseph enters the 11th of 12 brothers in the most dysfunctional family you have seen yet on the pages of God's Word. That's where he comes into the story. story. And so in the midst of a lot of jealousy, in the midst of a lot of angst, Joseph comes in, and there's two key moments that really set and initiate Joseph's Time of time of suffering in the Word of God. One, I think we gloss over, brethren, and that is the fact he lost his mother at a young age. I think we just kind of move past that. that when his youngest, uh, the youngest child, when his child, younger brother Benjamin was born, the birth was so severe that Rachel lost her life. You have to appreciate the fact that Joseph was, Joseph was young when he lived the majority of his life without mother, without a place of comfort, a person of compassion, that, that nurturing, kind example. Some of you know what that's like. And that's... And that's how in his time of, of difficulty. What added to it was the fact that the ten older brothers hated Joseph as much as anyone could have one. And in Genesis 37, we see why. There's several reasons God gives us as to why these ten brothers could not stand their younger brother Joseph. It says in beginning in verses 3 and verses 3 and 4, Joseph, because he was the favorite of their father Jacob. It says in verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the, the son of his age. And he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. He was a, he was a favorite child. It, it could be that Jacob's favorite because Rachel was his favorite wife, and so this being the son of the favorite wife, he just obviously is going to show favor to this son. To this son. could also be, if you read in here, that he says he was the son of his old age. You know, as well as I do, that there's a special bond between a father and a, and a daughter, a very kind of special protection bond that exists there. And there's a special bond between a mother and a son, sort of a special knit relationship between that, that close trust that exists there. Special relationship between a mother and a daughter. But dads, we know this. When you've got your boy and you've got this young boy, there, there's nothing like, like it. Masculine pride where you can be rough and tough and you can do all the things that mom wouldn't let you do because it's right in dad's wheelhouse, wrestling and playing. I don't know, I don't know what this at the time, but watching the sports with, with Joseph. Here is Jacob, and he has 10 older sons, but then here comes a boy again, and he gets to have this boy. And then, and then one of them feels young. He can do all those things, and then he feels old again because he's too old to do those things with Joseph. But he has that life reinvigorated through, the, through this young... And so what does Jacob do to say, you are my favorite son? 
He buys him a multicolored coat. You ever thought about that? Multi would mean it was really expensive. To get all the dyes to make that coat would be very costly, which is Jacob's way of saying, I will spare no, no expense for you. For you. But it's also a really showy gift, isn't it? It's not like he said, I'm going to buy you a really nice pair of sandals. Right? You don't really look at people's feet. People's feet. I'm going to you money. He bought him a multicolored coat. I mean, the more obvious thing he could have done is hung a sign around Joseph's neck, which says, I love him more than you, than all of you. I mean, you can, I mean, you can him from a mile away. And so the brothers saw it, and it was obvious. Dad has a favor, and it is not us, and it is younger. And then the chapter, chapter opened, showing that Joseph gave a bad report. In verse 1, it says that Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. It says, says in the, that Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and of Zilpha, his father's wives, Joseph brought back a bad report to them about their father. Sometimes I, I think we need to resist the temptation that comes when we read the story of, the story of Joseph. We know that there was no one who was, who was perfect and lived a sinless life from here to home than Jesus. Jesus was the only one. But when we read the story of Joseph, we don't really see any faults revealed to us, any sin revealed. And sometimes I believe we try and read it into the story. We want to make him like us. We want to, we want to make him. And we need to resist that temptation. The Holy Spirit is revealing what we need to see about Joseph, and we need to appreciate that. Verse 2 is not a spoiled brat tattletelling on his brothers. Verse, verse trust. There's 10 older brothers who cannot be trusted because they were the most vile, morally bankrupt boys of the some of them had murdered men in the town. One of them slept with their father's wife, which would have been some of the boy's mother. But then here comes a boy, and he's so, diff so different. He's worthy. He has integrity. He's honest. And what you see is someone who can be counted on to give the, tr the truth when the other ten boys can't be counted, on, be counted on no matter where they went and where they traveled to. I wasn't talking to you. Excuse me. <laughs> Ever been, there, ever been there before? You know you should be a certain way and exist a certain way. You should be living to a higher standard, and you're not. But then there comes someone into your church, into your workplace, into your, into your family, and maybe they're even younger than you are, and they're living the way you should, but you're not. Boy, that can create a lot of jealousy and a lot of envy. Here's Joseph, and Dad can trust on him to give the report, and he gives a bad report about these brothers who just want to do the wrong thing. And then to add to all of this, God, God obviously then chooses Joseph. If he's going to choose, choose a boy to further his plan, which you and I will see all along the way, it's not going to be one of those ten. Those ten were ruthless. Those ten were godless. But Joseph could be counted on. And so God chose Joseph to get this dream and Joseph to be the one to further his amazing plan. plan. And so it's five that Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I had had. For behold, we were binding sheaves and the king sheaves, and the my sheaf rose up and, and stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered and, and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to us, Are you actually, actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to reign over us? And they hated him more for his dreams and more for his words. Now he had yet another dream and related it to his brothers and said, and said Lo, I've had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, what, what is this dream you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? Brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. 
And whether or not he was wise, Joseph to share these dreams is, I think, aside from the point, because this isn't one of those dreams, those dreams anymore, where maybe you stay up too late, maybe you ate too much too late at night, and during that night you just had some really strange dreams, and you wake up, and honey, honey, I, I tell you what I dream. That's not like one of these. This is a dream that God told Joseph, and it so shook this young man, he had to tell someone about it. It was too real, real. It was too prophetic. It was too powerful to keep to himself. Well, who's he going to tell? The sheep? <laughs> his family was the only ones who was there. Of course he's going to tell his family. And so when they hear this dream about God choosing Joseph to rule over them, even though for his, for his father, that, that was it. Have you had those moments in life where you can look at it from this point and you can look backwards and say, from this point, this point, nothing was ever the same. When this happened, nothing was the same since. Have you had that yet? It's not always a bad thing, right? When we had our youngest child, right, our little daughter, nothing was ever the same since. <laughs> and that's a good thing. That's a really a good thing. Well, here's Joseph, and something is about to happen. His father chose him as a favorite. He's been doing what he should do all along the way. Chose him for a dream, and then something happens, and his life is never the same after this. Because in verse 12, his brothers go to pasture the father's flock in Jacob, and Israel said, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock? Come, and I will send you to them when I... And he said to him, I will go. Shechem is the place where some of these brothers had killed some men not long before. So certainly Jacob is thinking, you need to go check on them and make sure there's no more blood being shed. Go, go get some report on your brother. Joseph goes to check on, check on the brother. Verse 18, when they saw him from a distance, what did they see? When they saw that fancy coat coming from a distance and he came before them, close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death and to death. And one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will, we will say a beast devoured him. Then let's see what will become of his dreams. You kind of get where they're at in verse 20? Here he comes. Let's kill him. Let's throw him, throw him in it, and let's just say an animal devoured him. That's the depth of their hatred for Joseph. Let's just slit his throat. Let's be done with him. We hate him. Hate him this much, it'd be a lot better for us just to take his, to take his life. So it comes about in 23 when Joseph reaches his brother that they stripped him of his coat, his very colored, very colored tunic, took him and threw him into the empty pit. The pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from, coming from gear, camels, bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is, is it for us, for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him, to him. And so the Mishnahite traders passed by, and they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And thus they brought Joseph. Joseph. Can you appreciate in a short amount of time? Here is Joseph, and he is... The father's rich, showered with blessings at home, and in an instant, he's thrown into a pit. He is sold to traitors. He, he is far from home, and where we will find him in our next hour is sold, purchased as a slave. A man living in Egypt. Down, down, down he went. That's the beginning of Joseph's story. A young man into immense traumatic moments in an instant. 
I think at least starting here, there's a few things we can appreciate about what God is revealing about life and life storms. There's really four realities that are echoed and shown through the life of Joseph. And the first of which is simply that suffering is a part of everyone's story. Every single, every single story, whether if it's natural disasters, tornadoes and floods and hurricanes, such as what happened down in Florida this year, or maybe it's evil, evil work, people who just want to sow harm. They either curse or they slander or they lie or they bring violence with their hands or it's sickness and, dis and disease and illness. Job said it best that a man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble that you will not go from our, our journey from here to home without facing some sort of suffering. suffering. And what shows us this, even young people, even people who are few of years still face difficult times on their journey from here to home. The second reality is the fact that we can contribute to our own suffering. Appreciate the fact that from Jacob's perspective, I am doing something really good for Joseph. Joseph, blessing his life. I am giving him all my, I am showering my blessings upon him. But Jacob was the very reason, a large contributing reason as to why the other, why the other brother. Jacob contributed to the fall of Joseph. Or maybe even think of the brothers, the 10 brothers, open with jealousy. So hated Joseph. Did they have to? I mean, Joseph didn't ask for any of that. Did they have to be jealous of Joseph? Did they have to react to react and in violence? Could they have risen above it? Could they have followed the steps of their younger brother and said, you know, I don't like it, but the Lord is good. good even if we don't have all these blessings and we're going to choose a different day, they could have. They could have. And sometimes you and I can contribute to our own suffering and our own harm when we choose to cheat rather, cheat rather than study for the test or when we cho choose to steal rather than to work hard for what it is we want. When we choose to be jealous and envious rather than content with our blessings, Paul said, Paul said well, Galatians 6 verse 7, that there's a rule God has woven into our existence that whatever a person sows, this we will reap. And so, and so if we wish so, evil and harm and confusion and lies, we're going to reap a life that will follow from those fruits. And so we can be one who contributes to our own suffering. And the third reality is that reality is that's come from doing the right thing. Because Joseph did nothing in this text to merit the response of his brothers. Maybe he shouldn't have, shouldn't have told them we can get there, but at least he hasn't done any harm to them. He did not ask for this evil. And we're going to see in the next hour that he's going to get to Egypt. And the scene in which he's going to do an amazing thing as a young man of faith and stand up for what is right. And instead of being rewarded for it, he is going to be slandered and cast into prison. Sometimes the people of God are suffered. We suffer. We face hardship for doing the right thing. And so the boss says, I, says, I want you to fudge the numbers this quarter. We're low, and I need you to change it just for this quarter. And we say, no, no, we're, we're going to tell the truth, and we're just going to suffer through it. And he says, yes, we're going to suffer through it without you. Without you. Or the friends say, hey, we're going to, we're going to go to the bar after work. And you can do that. Let's, let's, go, let's go together. Say, no, no, I, I don't go to those places. Well, then, well, then we're not going to be your friend anymore. Or we're going to isolate you. You invite someone to a Bible study. Let's study the Bible. Have you ever talked about reading the Bible? Together and open the Word of God, and then you're labeled as, as a religious cult member. You set up boundaries on a date. God's Word says this, and Mom and Dad have helped me, and I'm not going to cross this line when I go on. When I go on, the dates get dumped. Their dates don't get asked out. Peter said there's a way in which the people of God can suffer for doing the right thing. First Peter 2, what credit is it if when you sin and are harshly did, you endure it with patience? In other words, what's the point of enduring when you get what you deserve? But in the end of verse 20, if when you do what, is, do what is right and you suffer for it, patiently endure it. This finds favor with God, that you can suffer for doing the right thing. 
for, te for telling the truth, for holding your convictions and your morals, it's not always rewarded in a world like we have today. And then I think the fourth reality is the fact that sometimes things get worse before they get better. In fact, sometimes, sometimes they are worse before they ever, ever get better. Have you heard the phrase before that storms comes in threes? Sometimes we say deaths come in threes. And here is Joseph. He's thrown into a pit. And he's sold to these traitors, taken all the way to Egypt, sold as a slave. slave. He is 17 years old. Let's appreciate that. He's only 17 years old. When he gets finally, in the end of his story, to stand before Pharaoh, and his life turns around, turns around to age 30. I know it's 931 on the Sunday morning, but you do a little bit of math. Well over a decade before Joseph ever gets things around in his life. And brethren, for some of us, it can be a lot longer. How long did Abraham have to wait for a child? How many years did Rebecca Era or Hannah pray for a baby? How long was it when Naomi was grieving before Boaz entered the scene and things turned around? I mean, how long did people of God wait for Jesus to come on this? To come on this? Things don't always turn around immediately, and sometimes things get a lot worse before they get better. But can you do something with me? It's where we are and where we're going to end up and end our lesson this morning. 17 years old. 17-year-old young man. And his life got completely turned upside down. He didn't ask for any of it. And yet by doing the right thing and being a young man of faith, faith was cast far from his home, thrown into him in suffering. But you know what you don't see? Do you hear him cursing God during this section? Do you see, do you see him bored for what he faced? Do you see him cursing his brothers, acting out in vengeance? One of the most amazing things about the life of Joseph that God chose to reveal is the fact that this young man, in the depth of his heart, had this spirit of long suffering, which led him and drove him through the storms with immense faithfulness to his God. How would you define long suffering? We're going to make this into a Bible class. A Bible class. You're welcome to give an answer. But if you were to define it, how would you define long suffering? Words like fortitude come to mind. Patient or patient endurance. But you notice that the larger part of that word is the word suffering. Long suffering. Long suffering need to get hit again and again and again and yet not quit. They get right back up and they keep on going. Because that's what it says. If I just hit him one more time, if I just go after his finances, if I go after her health, just one more temptation, one more hardship, and they're going to throw it all away. They're going to give it up one more time. And it's the strength to be hit one more time and to get back up. It's the strength to suffer and endure a hardship one more time and to keep on going. I'm going. It's Captain America who's knocked down, but then he picks up his shield and stands up and says, I can do this all day. Joseph, who was thrown into a pit, who was sold into trade, who was taken to Egypt, who was bought as a slave in Egypt, and who says, The God of my God of my Father is my God. It's a faith that never gives up. Surely he would have believed that dad was going to come to him. Surely he believed that things were going to turn around. And yet even when they didn't, it was a faith that never stopped. Even when it's dark, I still believe in God. Even when it's hard, I still have hope and hope in God's says. Even when people are evil, evil, I'm still be good. And I'm going to trust in the word of the Lord. And I'm going to be loving as God calls me to be loving because I have a faith that isn't determined by the sentences by, by by in life. My faith is solid and determined. My faith is steadfast. Come what may. It is a faith that never, never 
Now let me ask you something. I want you to think about that. Don't, don't, don't gloss over this. What would you do for this? What would you do for a faith that can say, Satan, you can cast what you want at me, at me. Whatever storms you want my way, but I'm not giving up. I'm not changing on my convictions. I'm not casting away what I believe. You can what you want into my life, but I stand where I stand. I stand with Jesus. How do you get there? How do you get to a place where you say, I want that kind of, kind of steadfast determination, that long-suffering in our life? You know, Paul talked about it. Second, or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the end of that beautiful letter, verse 58, when he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, in the Lord your is not in vain. Isn't that what he's calling it to? Steadfastness. Long-suffering. Once you notice these words, just a few. Look at that word steadfast. Steadfast. Built on the rock. That I know what I believe. I know why I believe it. In fact, Paul would, uh, would, uh, or Jesus in Matthew 7 about this rock, this foundation. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That's the idea. The certainty of what I believe, it's not based, it's not based on what I believe. It's not based on what the church believes. I know, know what I believe and I know why I believe it. It's built on the word of God. It's based on the words of Jesus. My faith is not easily, easily, moved, easily moved. What did Paul say in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12? I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard that which he's entrusted to me until this day. I know it. Joseph knew who he was, and he knew who God was. His faith was built on the rock. I'm steadfast. Can we say that today? I know what I believe. I know it. I know it is true. Not only do I know what I believe, I know why I believe it. And nothing out here changes it. No evil, no storms, no darkness, no doubts, no doubts. Those can change what I know to be true because, because my faith is built on rock. I'm steadfast. This is true, and this is where I stand. You also notice the word, it's a word, movable. That speaks to our resolve. It speaks to our commitment. It's that language, if you think of the, the psalmist, how it opens in Psalm 1, verse 3, that he that who meditate on the word of God daily are like, like a tree fully planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. If you can get the imagery, the imagery, here's his rock, and I'm standing on it. It's now I've taken my roots, and I'm dug down deep, which is my way of saying, I, I'm in, and I'm not moving. Because Satan says, How'd you like to get off that rock? I'm going to lure you, lure you, Jesus. And so if you just step off that for, for a moment, I can give you more money than you could possibly dream of if you would change on your convictions. I would give you more pleasure than you could possibly imagine if you would just break your commitment and your vow to your mate. If you could shrink on your conviction, conviction to the same. There's nothing, there's nothing you could offer me that could possibly compare to what I have in Jesus. I'm not moving. And that's when Satan says, fine. If I can't lure you off that rock, I'll bluff. And so I'm going to take your health. And I'm going to take your job and your money. I'm going to hurt everyone in your life. I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring something imaginable into your life. And it's the faith, brethren, and the strength to say, even then, I'm not moving. Say that today. Can we this day, this Lord say, can we say that, brethren? You can, you can take anything that means the most to me, 
You can take my family. You can take my, my jobs. You can hurt my brethren. You can bring all the pain you want. I'm not leaving him. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not leaving Jesus. My, my, my mind is made up. My decision has been made. It doesn't matter what, matter what, sow, what, what evil you sow into my life. I have made up my mind. My commitment is set, and I'm with him to the end. I'm immovable. The only way we move, the only direction we are heading, as Paul would say, is that we're moving onward and upward and forward. We're abounding. Joseph didn't stay the same. No, they could throw him in a prison. They could throw him in a dungeon. They could put him on the back of a camel, but they could take away his faith. You've seen the young man, already impressive at, at, at 17, is here's a young man who continued to grow and to grow and to grow. He matured in his faith, deepened in his understanding of grace and mercy. His trust in the promises of God bloomed like a cactus in the Arizona desert. It's a young man who continued to thrive even in the midst of the worst adversity. What's the call of God? Trust, immovable, always abounding in every season of life. Remember Maya? Everyone said she was done. Everyone said that was it. The accident that she faced, faced was the last would ever serve. All of her comrades said she never should ever dare get on the board again. The doctor said she had no business ever trying to surf again from that fatal accident in 13. But in January of 2020, she rose and got on the board and broke world record surfing a wave that was 73 feet tall, 23 feet higher than the one she fell on. What do you see from the story of Joseph? Long-suffering. It's a faith, faith that doesn't quit. You can throw me in a pit. You can take me from my family. You can cast me into immense, immense unknown suffering unimaginable, but you cannot take my faith. In good times or in bad, in the green pastures or in the deep, dark valleys, I will always keep my faith and my trust in King Jesus. That's the call for us, good brethren. And if you're here this morning and you've not started that journey with them, this is that time. This is the time as the day begins, this beautiful Lord's Day, to make that decision your decision. That even before we, before we continue our activities today of being in the Word of God and studying and remembering our Lord's death and burial and resurrection, that if you today have found yourself, as, as this day begins, not right with your Lord, maybe you've not started your journey with Him and you are willing today, right now, to confess your faith in Jesus, Willing to turn from sin and put him on baptism today. All I all activity stop and we would pause in this very moment. We would you to become adopted into his family and living heaven bound. Or if you find yourself this very hour, not in a right relationship with your God, there is nothing that matters more right now, this moment, than to know that we are standing right, pure in his eyes, forgiven, living the way he has called us to live, to live. And if we with that, we'll pray for you or encourage you. This is why we have this time. So if we can help you in any way, let's do it right now. Come on right down here as we stand and as we sing.